This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. He has done great things, he is doing great things, and he's going to continue to do great things. That's the promise of this day. Go ahead and be seated, and if you have your Bibles, would you please open them to the Easter story, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Our vision here at Alliance Bible Church is captivating generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. The origin of our vision starts in the first book of the Bible. When I was learning not just to read, but learn how to read a book, I was told to pay close attention to how a story begins. Now, everyone of us knows that because you've all been in a situation where you're one hour into a movie and your friend or loved one comes into the room, right? They've missed the first hour, and what happens? They start peppering you with questions. Well, who's that? Now, what's this about? And you're having to pause it constantly to explain what's going on, right? Because they've missed the beginning, which sets the trajectory for the rest of it. In Genesis 3, first book of the Bible, third chapter of the entire Bible, Satan quite craftily convinces Eve that her life is not as good as it could be. Her life could be better if she operates differently than God said to. Satan holds out part of God's creation, that mysterious tree, to be the solution. And in doing so, Satan reveals a tactic that he uses on you every day. The if-only tactic. If only I then I could be content. If only I could get married, then I'd be happy. If only I had more money, then I'd be satisfied. If only my candidate would win the election, then I'd be happy. Satan's sleight of hand is to get you to fall for God's substitutes. And it worked on Adam and Eve. And the irony of the story, the big irony of the story is that they actually got the very thing they thought they needed to be content And their lives became infinitely worse than they were before. Sometimes God gives us the desire of our heart so that we can see it's not the answer. So the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished a lot. But one of those, one of the things the cross and resurrection accomplished is to win back the hearts of people who got suckered into thinking satisfaction can be found in someone or something other than Jesus. The cross and resurrection is there in part to enthrall you with Jesus, to mesmerize you with Jesus, to captivate you with Jesus. It's one of the purposes of it. One of the purposes of the cross and resurrection is to get you to stare at Jesus and stare at Jesus and stare at Jesus and stare at Jesus. So let's look at this story. Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And Mark talks about Salome, who we saw in the drama, went to the tomb. Now, the first day of the week is Sunday. But more than that, what is the significance of the first day of the week? The first day of the week kicks off creation back in Genesis 1. When the first words of creation exited the mouth of God, what did he say? Let there be light. Now you'll notice there's a lot of light associated with the angel's appearance. So it's not coincidence. The resurrection is the first day of the week. The resurrection marks the beginning of a new creation. Resurrection Sunday begins to fulfill what Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 43. Let me read part of this to you. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. The resurrection is about newness, making a way where there was previously none. I am doing a new thing, God says. And as we progress through this scene, we're going to get the sense that what's happening is exciting. And it's meant to be. It's new. And new is often exciting. We live in a place with four seasons. Of course, not all of them are of equal length. But we get four seasons. And I've talked with a number of you over the years who describe with joy With joy, a change from one season to the next. Newness is invigorating. Buying a new house, buying a new car. I got new golf clubs a year and a half ago. (laughs) That new baby, that new grandbaby. Every new thing that gets you excited is only a pointer to the ultimate new thing God did in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christian people are people of a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting new thing. Giving birth to Lakeside Alliance Church next year is going to be a new thing. And when we do, don't miss this, we will bear the family resemblance of our Heavenly Father who delights in doing New things. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. 
See, I have told you. Notice all the drama, (laughs) the imagery, the vividness surrounding the resurrection. There's a great earthquake as the angel of the Lord descended. The angel rolls back the stone and sits on it. That is an interesting and humorous posture to take. His appearance is like lightning with clothing as white as snow. You get the picture for this? This is sensory overload. Brilliant. Overwhelming. Difficult for the human eye to take in without squinting or turning away. Now notice, none of this has to do with getting Jesus out of the tomb. He's already gone. The angel descending, the earthquake, the rolling of the stone is not about freeing Jesus from the tomb. He's already gone. I mean, think about how ridiculous that would be. He's defeated death. He's alive, but he's stuck behind a rock. (laughs) Remember John's gospel. After the resurrection, the disciples are gathered behind locked doors, and Jesus comes and stands among them. Apparently, he can walk through locked doors and walls and all that sort of thing in post-resurrection existence. All this pomp, all this splendor is not about letting Jesus out of the tomb. You know what it's about? Revealing the reality of the resurrection to people who think he's dead. Now, there are two distinct responses to the angel's glorious appearance and actions. You've got the women, you've got the guards. Two different reactions. The women who are said to be actively seeking Jesus are comforted, invited to see where he once lay, and then commanded to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is alive. And you got the guards, former, current combat soldiers. They're already present, guarding the tomb, and apparently uninterested and indifferent to who was in there. The reality of the resurrection is no comfort to those indifferent to Jesus. In fact, in verse 15, after this section of text, we're told that they were paid off in order to preserve a conspiracy theory as to what had happened to the body. When the power of God collides with unbelief, it can have the effect of crippling fear. Why do so many who don't believe not come to church? underneath it all is fear. Fear produces avoidance. I mean, if the soldiers had known what all was going to take place, would they have really fulfilled their shift? Would they have obeyed the orders? Now, there's a mystery in this scene that I don't have an answer for. Why did the angel comfort the women, but not the soldiers? The soldiers passed out. The text begs us to see This is what's happened to them. They've been rendered unconscious. It's a pretty severe reaction to the glory of this angel. And yet the angel ignores them, but goes to great lengths to comfort the women. Why? There's a selectivity here that's hard to ignore. God chose to see that these women were comforted and instructed and chose not to do the same for the soldiers. There's a mystery to this. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. 
Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Fear mingled with great joy. Fear mingled with great joy. Can you wrap your head around that? Fear mingled with great joy. It's, it's a marvelous and unique way to respond. And we shouldn't try to diminish the fear they felt. This is legit fear. This is not some diluted version of it that we'd like to convey it as. But this is fear mixed with great joy. It's such a rich and nuanced way to respond to the power of God. Three times the women are told to go tell. Go tell the disciples. Come and see, go and tell. That is the invitation that goes out to everybody. This is the invitation we offer others. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see what it's all about. Come with me to church on Easter. See for yourself what it's all about. Come and see in the book. Come and see in the book for yourself what it's all about. Come and see. Come and see. And go and tell. Go and tell. The angel invites, come and see, and then says, go and tell. Simple, simple. Tell what? Jesus is alive. Post that on social media today. Jesus is alive. This changes everything. Jesus is alive. This changes everything. How so? Let me draw out three applications. Three applications. Number one, hope in the God of unexpected reversals. Hope in the God of unexpected reversals. Why were the women headed to the tomb? To anoint the body. No doubt they went in sadness. But an extraordinary surprise awaited them. Our God is a God of unexpected reversals. I mean, how far out in left field did this come for these women? They're going to try to sweeten up a corpse, and when the unexpected happens, Jesus isn't there. There's no corpse to anoint. How quickly God turns their mourning into dancing. So listen, Christian, the one thing the resurrection disqualifies you from is pessimism. Get rid of it now. The one thing, the one thing the resurrection disqualifies all Christians from is pessimism. We've been saved by the God of unexpected reversals. We are people of an empty tomb. Let's use a sanctified imagination to ponder how many different ways Jesus could have let the women know he was alive. (laughs) Why not wake them up just before the alarm clock goes off? Spare them the hassle of having to get up and get ready and make the trek out there. Why not just, hey, I'm alive. Or why not intercept them on their way to the tomb? Jump out from behind a tree. I'm alive. (laughs) Why not just wait for them at the tomb? Greet them. Hmm? Just wait for them. Instead, Jesus lets them make the trek out there in sadness, in tears, carrying spices used to embalm a body. Why does he orchestrate to unfold that way? Because this is exactly how he wanted it to unfold. I mean, picture Jesus. 
he's at the rendezvous point, right? He's, he's going to meet them on their way to Galilee, on their way to talk to the disciples, okay? So he's waiting there. The women are on their way out to the tomb. Maybe Jesus is sitting under a tree, sitting on a rock under a tree. He's playing with a blade of grass. Does he picture in his imagination what this is going to be like for the women? Maybe he sees it. Maybe he sees it all unfolding. As he sits there playing with this blade of grass, does a smile come to his face? (laughs) I know we have mixed feelings about surprises. But when the gift I have for my wife is something I think I really nailed, I have a hard time containing my joy. Was Jesus thinking about these women and saying to himself or saying to them in his head, I have a surprise for you. (laughs) He orchestrated a literal journey of discovery wherein it was revealed to them things were no longer as they once were. Maybe he wants us to go through the process. Maybe he wants us to have to get up while it's still dark, put on our clothes, make a long trek out there in tears and sadness, thinking we're approaching one thing when in fact we're approaching something completely different. The unexpected reversal is God's MO. I want you to carry that with you, Christian. Toward what tomb are you walking now? What darkness are you living through? What corpse are you on your way to embalm? I can imagine these women coming to visit us, coming to visit you in your darkness, putting their arms around your shoulders and saying, listen, the next time you're on your way to embalm a dead body, don't be surprised if when you get there, there's no body to embalm, but a victorious king to be worshipped. The one thing the resurrection disqualifies Christians from is pessimism. Hope in the God of unexpected reversals. Second, trust the God of powerful illuminations. The earthquake, the angel, the rolling back of the stone, the appearance of lightning, clothes white as snow, none of that's to let Jesus out. He's already gone. All of it is for the purpose of impressing upon these women the reality of the resurrection. It was a visible, audible, sensory statement of God's authority. Listen, when, when, God, wants, when God wants to break through the barriers in someone's life, nothing will hold him back. When God wants to knock someone over with the reality of Jesus crucified and resurrected, he does so. When God wants to overwhelm someone with the reality of who he is and what he has done, nothing and no one can stop him. This became very real to me about 15 years ago, 16 years ago. I was a a pastor on call in the church where I was serving, and um, a, a young gal came in in her 20s, uh, spoke to the receptionist and said, I'd like to see a pastor and so she came and she saw me. She sat down at my office and I said, what's on your mind? She talked probably for the next 10 minutes. She alluded to, in some very vague terms, something that she and her husband had been a part of the previous week. Something that sounded yucky. She didn't give any details. She got done telling this story. She paused, and then she said this. She said, so 
I think I need to be born again. Now, there was nothing in what she had said leading up to that moment that would lead me to believe she even understood what that meant. So just to make sure we were on the same page and I was tracking with her and she's understanding what it is that she thinks she needs, I started explaining the gospel to her. And it was a constant two minutes of her nodding her head as I tried to explain this to her. I tell you what, she was ripe fruit barely hanging onto the vine. She prayed to receive Christ. One week later, her husband did the same. Today, they are missionaries in Senegal. You've met them, Josh and Heather Erickson. They've been on our stage here before. What I was so astounded by is that God didn't need me to tell her what needed to happen in her life for her to drop the knee and bow before Jesus. God had made a powerful, powerful resurrection appearance to her through Jesus and did the same for her husband. Listen, when God wants to knock someone over with the reality of Jesus crucified and resurrected, he does so. He does so. Trust the God of powerful illuminations. Last, treasure the Christ of the resurrection. Towards the end of the story, it says, the women came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. You have that picture in your head? So the women were instructed by the angel, go go here and Jesus will meet you. They find Jesus. They take hold of his feet and they worship him. That is the goal of this day for you. The resurrection can send us on a journey of discovery and meditation and fear and joy and wonder, but its terminus is bowed before the victorious king in worship. That's the point of everything else that happened at Easter. The point of the unexpected reversal is the treasuring of Christ. Listen, if Jesus was to unleash an unexpected reversal, but there would be no worship of him in response to it, might he withhold it? The point of God overpowering people with illuminations that convey the brute reality of the resurrection is the treasuring of Christ. If the Lord was to unleash this, but there would be no treasuring of Christ, like the guards, might he withhold it? The point of all of this is the worship of Christ, submission to him, obedience to him, surrender to him, treasuring him, cherishing him. Why? Because Jesus is ultimate. When the world is rightly ordered, we will assume the posture of these women. You can write that down. When the world is rightly ordered, we will assume the posture of these women. Question, is your, if your life ordered that way? Submitted to Christ, treasuring him above all competing lords, captivated by the infinite complexities of his life, character, and personhood. When the world is rightly ordered, all of creation will assume the posture of these women. In fact, the posture of these women before Jesus ought to be captioned with the words, this is the way life is supposed to be. Think of the greatest 
political and military characters of human history. Alexander the Great, Constantine the Great, Napoleon, Winston Churchill, or some of the great leaders of the church, Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Edward, Spurgeon, or the great characters of the Bible, Noah, Elijah, David, John the Baptist. Who are they compared to Jesus Christ? Like a grain of sand compared to Mount Everest. James Allen Francis put it this way, and I'll conclude with this. He writes of Jesus, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never owned a house. He never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he stands as the central figure of the human race. I am far within the mark when I say that all the enemies that ever, armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as this one solitary life. Listen, if you make your, if you make Jesus your obsession, your obsession, your life will forever be impacted in untold and innumerable ways. When we assume the posture of these women before Jesus, the world will be rightly ordered. Let's pray. What an amazing day this is, God. The perfect life Jesus lived in our place. The death he died in our place. The death he defeated. (laughs) Earns him the title of victorious king. There is nothing more interesting in the world. There's nothing more interesting in our lives at this moment or any moment than that. But Lord, we know we live in a world where other things compete. Where we find ourselves bowed before, grasping the feet of things and people other than Jesus. Lord, show us those spots in our lives. Where Jesus has been relegated periphery. But don't leave us there. 
impress upon us the significance of his life, his death, his resurrection. It is there to enthrall us, to mesmerize us, to captivate us. God, I pray that you would win back the hearts of those who have strayed far. That we as a church, the body of Christ, may assume the posture of these women, grasping Jesus, your feet, in worship. We do that now with hearts filled with joy and celebration to the glory of your name. Amen.